All right, Jen, welcome back on the show. Um, meeting under strenuous circumstances, we were just catching up before this about how this has changed our personal lives and working environments. But I uh, really want to dive down with you and, and, and especially the community that you serve, right? The disproportionately um, disadvantaged side of society that now we don't see anymore because we don't go outside, mm -hmm. right? We don't, we're not connecting on social media with anymore, right? Because mm -hmm. they might not be as connected. So uh, I really want to dive into this with you about you know, what are the changes uh, happening socially within our, within our society that we might not be might not be visible to us anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a number of, of factors at play. I think one of the biggest things for the, the young people that we serve is that um, home is a very challenging place for some of them to be. So not all of our students, um, but if you look at any, any of our target demographics, so if you look at a, a young person who lives in a household with all of the added strain of maybe one parent or two parents who are working on the front lines right now. You know, a lot of people mm -hmm. don't have the luxury of working from home and don't have jobs where they can be not working. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of instances where we have students who are under a lot of stress, young children, because they see, you know, the added hardship in terms of the financial impacts of this. They see mom and dad who are going out and especially for older kids who are aware of, of what COVID-19 means and what the impact is, there's a lot of added stress knowing that you have family members who have to go out in the community and be working and things like that. So there's stress there. We also have students who unfortunately are in situations where home is not a safe place for them, right? So students who are you know, exposed to domestic violence or addictions or severe mental health issues in the home, um, that is a very challenging situation to now be in that home all of the time with no break, with no respite. You don't get to go to school. You don't get to see your friends. You know, you're not in other programs. You're not around other adults. So it's a very stressful time for, for the kids that we serve. And I think the biggest thing that we're noticing as an organization is that there's a huge focus being placed on you know, making sure that kids are keeping up academically. So, you know, the government is putting lots of effort into, you know, how are we, how is this panning out in terms of, you know, reading and writing and math and what kinds of resources are available <coughs> to parents. The piece I think that's missing is the social, emotional wellness, the mental health piece. You know, for a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, it's as important to be in school, to learn how to be with others, to learn how to feel good about yourself, to learn team dynamics and communication and all these things as it is the academic side. So where we see our role in this is really working to ensure that students have that outlet for creative thinking, creative problem solving, to connect with other peers, to connect with supportive adults and focus on the social emotional piece of what's going on in this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd really like to dig deeper into that and uh, in any kind of cases you can share. Because I think one of the most concerning things is the fact that we cannot directly engage anymore with the side of the community that needs the most, um, the kind of support. And I mean, I think everyone can kind of like, um, kind of sympathize, you know, being uh, even a teenager or a kid and just wanting to go spend time with other people, right, than your family members, just because you got no fight or had something you want to talk about or any issues. Just the idea of getting out and exposing yourself to other people sometimes is liberating. 
right? And when you're stuck in an environment, which like you said, might not be the best suited environment for them, their home environment is not being safe, uh, that is really difficult. It's very right. challenging. And I think, you know, even for the students that we serve that have uh, really supportive home environments, you know, the majority of the students we serve are still dealing with food insecurity and poverty. And that is absolutely heightened at this time. You know, a lot of students rely on uh, lunch programs at school. They, you know, rely on a lot of additional community supports that right now, you know, organizations are doing their absolute best to be able to serve students in that way as well, but it's very challenging. And so there's a lot of added stress there. Um, an example I would give in, in what we've been learning is, so as an organization, we came together and we spent the last couple of weeks really figuring out, you know, where we could go and how we could serve the students that we work with. And so the team has been amazing. They're, you know, I work with an amazing group of people who are really smart and really committed uh, to what we do. And they came up with some amazing opportunities to transition to online platforms for a number of our programs. So looking at, you know, very robust online classrooms where students would be connecting with each other and with our Dare Arts facilitators where they would receive, you know, supplies kits in the mail so that they can be participating at home. And, and we would still have guest artists come on and they can you know, be teaching them break dancing and painting and all of these different things in an online classroom, which is very cool. But when we started having conversations with the Vancouver School Board, which is one of our uh, amazing partner of ours in, in BC, um, the thing that we immediately realized is that the students that we serve in Vancouver specifically do not have access to the internet or any form of technology at home. And so, you know, we have students in Toronto where there's certainly barriers to access, but at the end of the day, we're likely still going to be able to serve them. We're going to be able to run an online classroom. The kids in Vancouver, there's no option for that. You know, there, and a lot of those students in particular are dealing with some very severe issues in terms of addictions in, in the home. And so you've got a situation where nobody can really reach them. So if you picture, you know, a 10 year old who's at home with no access to the outside world and they have to, and they, and I mean, think about, so think about for me personally, I'm sure for you, technology is what's sustaining all of our, the social piece of our life, right? I mean, we were just chatting before this in the evenings, you know, you log on with your friends and you have a video chat and, you know, some mornings I wake up and I feel like I've had such a social week. I've been out every night, you know, on video chats. <laughs> um, and that's not the case The the kids that we're working with, they don't even have access to that. So, yeah. you know, now you're in an environment where there may be lots, several children in a household. You might have a mom or dad who needs to be out working or who's struggling with other issues. You've got siblings who are trying to help care for the younger siblings and you're completely cut off from the outside world. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're very happy to hear that in Vancouver, actually, there's some partnerships that are coming up where they're looking at offering things like, you know, hotspots to communities in need so that kids can access Wi-Fi. But it's still, we still need the kids to have computers or iPads or something that they can loop in and connect with. Yeah, absolutely. So, can you talk a little bit about, like, the shifts uh, your organization has to face uh, in the last few weeks? in order to serve these communities and what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been significant. So um, the biggest thing that we, so I'll, I mean, I'll mention the positive first. The positive is yeah. that in any situation like this, there's actually a beautiful opportunity to pivot. And, yeah. you know, I think that a lot of the time an iterative model is a positive thing in any type of organization or business. And so the idea that we have to come together around this issue and then we have to really figure out a way that we're going to 
creatively problem solve is not a bad mm -hmm. thing. You know, it, it works new muscles in our brain and as a team. And so there's been, really been a very renewed sense of purpose amongst the team and, and how are we gonna how are we gonna get on top of this? So we started by pivoting towards looking at the obvious, which is online programs. Um, and so the teams come together and really looked at, at how that could function. How would a, a, a cohort of a core program, like 25 students who are pre-registered, come and log in and participate in this program? What does it look like? And some of the challenges you face are just the little things you don't think of. So, you know, the team says to me yesterday, we've got to figure out how to have, um, how to quickly be able to sort of cut, you know, screens and audio and things like that. Because what if somebody has, you know, some siblings in the background that, as kids do, decide they want to do something, you know, slightly inappropriate on, on, on video amidst a classroom environment, right? So there's all of these little things that you really don't think about. Or, you know, if we wanted to do breakdancing, what about a child who might have, you know, three siblings and they're in a very small, closed environment? Is it going to be safe for them to do that? So there's a number of different considerations like that, but the technology is the biggest one. So access for the students, access in our northern communities, there is no access to internet in home environments at all. So for northern communities, <coughs> cannot offer them remote online programming at all. And access to technology for our teams. So that's been an interesting one is if suddenly we're asking our facilitators to do online workshops to facilitate you know lots of different classroom environments suddenly we need a team who has the right lighting and equipment and can capture good audio so that we can produce something that is really going to connect with kids and resonate and keep them engaged um so i would say that the access to technology has been a, a big piece um that's a challenge for us and we're, we're navigating it as best we can and then we're looking at online programs in addition to now doing several components of the mail, which is funny. I mean, in 2020 to be looking at the mail, what we are. So we're, we're looking at disseminating Dare Arts kits that will come with a series of activities that will have full instructions and supplies and everything you need. And we would like to disseminate these into the communities we currently work with. So up in our Northern Indigenous communities, as well as the Vancouver School Board, as well as through uh, shelters and food banks. And that's a, a new, um, target population for us that we're quite excited to be able to step in and, and support something for, for those kids as well. So that's a little bit of where we're at, how we're trying to do that. No, that's amazing. Have you, uh, are you partnered with any tech companies or anything that can help you navigate through all this? We're, we're not at the moment. I mean, you know, we, we've been, uh, I think the last time I was on the podcast, I mentioned we've been so fortunate through the connections that we've made through TechTO and really connected with a number of individuals and companies who have supported it in a lot of different ways. You know, we, yeah. we through TechTO, we met um, creative agency, Art Mechanical, who's currently doing an entire communications project for us pro bono. So we've, we've made some amazing connections, um, but we haven't onboarded any, any funders that would specifically be looking at supporting that gap in technology. And, and I mean, that would be the biggest thing for us. If we could say, you know, here's 25 students in our program and we can disseminate iPads to each of them, I mean, it would completely shift. Suddenly you've got a kid who can go into a space by themselves, completely engage, be, you know, really present in the programs that we offer. And again, it's, it's a really important opportunity for them to have. Is there a way to like uh, crowdsource this? I'm, I'm sure there's like people in the com community who are willing to commit some funds to help, uh, help these kind of causes if uh, you can reach them, right? Yeah, I mean that's a, I mean that's a great idea. We're, uh, we're we're always looking at different ways to to connect with with more people and see what we can do. I mean, 
one of our focuses right now is also in terms of obviously there's there's the piece around sustaining operations as well as funding and impacts from from the crisis on that as well and so we are placing some of our resources into pivoting our gala which is a very important fundraiser for us it, it raises 25 percent of our, our annual revenue so when we yeah. originally looked and said we can't have host an in-person gala what are we going to do and we sort of said, well, how are we going to be Dare Arts? You know, we talk a lot about creative problem solving. We talk a lot about, you know, encouraging our students to push their comfort zone and think outside of the box and all of those things. And so with our gala, we decided to think outside of the box by thinking in a box, which is that we're, uh, we're creating a gala in a box, essentially. Mm. So we've got these brave boxes that are going to go out on June 4th and rather than having 350 people come to a gala, 350 people are gonna receive boxes in the mail that are gonna have you know, really creative kind of daring activities in them and there's gonna be food and beverages and all of these things and it's gonna be paired with an online uh, participation component that you can hear from youth in our programs and things like that. And so I think some of our focus has been placed there just because we wanna make sure that we still have the funds coming in to operate and then balancing that with needing to do things like crowdsourcing technology and making sure that we're connecting with youth. So there's, I mean, there's a lot going on and our team is sort of working well into the night and really focusing really diligently to make sure that this can happen for the kids that we work with. Yeah, how's that, how's that shift been within the team? You touched a little bit about that. Um, how, are you guys been like, in, are you guys in shock? Are you guys in reaction mode? Are you guys kind of been semi-prepared for this, uh, working virtually? Like, how is your team structured? Yeah, um, you know, I I don't know if this is an anomaly. I do know that several people that I speak with are, you know, struggling with different <coughs> organizationally and culture. Um, for us, it's all been very empowering, I guess. I mean, we're a team of people that like to be creative and like to try new things. And so, you know, first you've got the energy of people just being the, the purpose, right? Wow, our kids are in really bad situations right now. We need to help them. And then you've got the, hey, this is kind of cool. Maybe we can explore new ways to work. And what would this look like in the future, you know, COVID or not? Uh, and so we now have uh, check-ins daily with our leadership team by video, but we also check in with our whole staff team across Canada three times a week by video. And those ones are not staff meetings, they're just to come together and have tea and talk about what everybody's living and tell funny stories. And then we also have our usual staff <coughs> meetings that we're doing by video and we're on Zoom constantly when we're troubleshooting different projects. So as a result, our team is more connected than when we worked out of a physical space. When we worked out of a physical space, I you know, personally have to be in meetings quite a lot outside of the office. And it's always a balance trying to figure out, like, I love the people I work with. I want to, I want to be there and you want to be able to offer the right amount of support and leadership, but you've always got to be out. And every time you go to a meeting, you've got to take time to travel to the next meeting, right? And you've got to try and work the, the schedule effectively. So now we've got a situation where I can be in twice as many meetings in a day and I can speak to my team all throughout the day. And I think everybody's more connected. I think everybody's yeah. more connected. And I think that before where we would have a Toronto team, a head office team that would meet in person, and then we would loop in our other regions by video, it's kind of leveled the playing field. Like we're now all in video. And so we, I would say we feel more like a, a team, a cohesive unit across the country, which is really yeah. Kind of <laughs> That's so interesting, right? Like even, uh, I mean, I'm noticing this through the podcast where like our capabilities have, have now become like 10 times full. We're having podcasts like uh, talking to people in like uh, from different countries, 
from France, from UK. I talked to earlier through Tim uh, Allison from uh, Nova Scotia, right? Mm -hmm. And the interconnectivity has gone up. And uh, one of the things that everyone's definitely talking about is their time, right? If before, yeah, going on video chats, seeing like a foreign thing, right? You have to take time out of your day to mm -hmm. schedule it and do it. But now because like everyone's at home anyways and it's the only way to interact, now people are open to this. So it's more opportunity to connect people at a wider scale, right? Whether it be your the people, your coworkers you're working with, or the, the community you service, people have to have to connect in this kind of way, right? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, and holders too. I mean, it's interesting because the nature of everybody being at home, people are just a lot more accessible. You know, if I've got somebody who I would really like to speak to from, you know, one of our major funders, and they're very busy people, obviously working in leadership positions in corporate sectors. And it's a lot easier now to say, just mm. jump on for 30, just share 30 minutes of your time. They're, they're, they're yeah, happy yeah, yeah, yeah. do that by video. And I mean, I find, you know, obviously you're saving a commute time and you're saving time doing meetings. So I'm getting more work hours in a day. And yet life feels a little bit simpler. You know, there's yeah. less moving around everywhere and um i do again acknowledge like it's i think it's an incredible privilege and luxury to be in a situation where i do get to work from home and where i get to you know continue earning an income and doing what I'm passionate about and doing it in a format that now i can you know go for a longer bike ride in the middle of the day yeah. because i've got all these other hours that i can just work around the clock right um so i feel fortunate for that but certainly for our organization it's it's starting to make us question i think that at the end of all of this, we'll likely come together as a team and I will pose the question to the team, you know, what's the preference? You know, is it a model where this is 50% of the time that it's kind of a set structure where two days of the week or three days a week, everybody works at home on the same days and connect by video? Is it something where some people just choose to work remotely permanently, but they loop in by video? Like where, you know, obviously we want to, as an organization support everybody to work how they thrive. Um, so I'm going to be very curious to see how it comes out, if I, especially after a few months. You know, if people say, well, that was a fun experiment, but I would really like to be in the physical office, um, or whether this is just the new, the way of the future and how we work. No, absolutely. I, I mean, uh, it's, it's cool seeing from NGO's point of view, too, that you agree, because I'm talking to a lot of other companies, from big corporates to startups, and they're seeing, why was I paying $20,000 for an office space? <clears throat> You know, why was I forcing people to come in an hour by commute in a super, you know, in, a, in, a, in an area like Toronto where traffic is horrible, right? I mean, people have so much more time when they're like working in this kind of way. way. And we're, I think we touched upon it uh, in our previous episode where it's like now it's 100% more less, it's less um, work-life balance and now 100% work-life integration. How do the yeah. two kind of work together, right? Yeah. And because of that, it's more free. You can step out and like do your personal stuff and then right away switch into work and you kind of get bouncing back around, but uh, it's more liberating in that kind of way. It's interesting. I had a conversation this morning with um, a colleague in my field who runs another uh, nonprofit. And we were talking about this because he was saying that, you know, he has some staff or knows of people where it's created, um, there's an increased anxiety because they may actually prefer the, the, a strong delineation between or compartmentalization of their work hours and their personal hours. And that being at home, working from home creates some added anxiety and stress because they really want to be away from that environment um, when, they, when they're working. Uh, for me personally, 
I've been I've been a proponent of that work-life integration for many years and you know I you know one of the things that's kind of neat is that now that we don't sort of get up and go to an office for eight in the morning you know if I I'm a bit of a night owl sometimes I get lots of energy at night you know, my team this morning on our call said, I saw you were editing that document at 1.30 in the morning, Jen. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But it, it's great because, you know, I went out last night and I went, I biked to, you know, Etobicoke and back. And then I had all this energy and at 10 o'clock I started working again. And then I worked until about two in the morning. Um, yeah. Which when you're passionate about what you do and you're energized by it, it's very freeing to know that I can work till two in the morning when my mind is really energized because I don't have to get up at six and immediately start, you know, in the middle of the chaos. You know, I kind of slept in until about eight thirty, and then and then started again. So there is you roll that. out of bed and you work. You roll out of bed and go to work. I mean, exactly right. Yes. Especially like the, before the video calls start, you really just roll out of bed and yeah, go to work. Um, absolutely. It's, you know, all you need is a laptop or your phone, and then. You just need some kind of some kind of some kind of device to connect with. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are seeing the freeing aspects of this, right? I mean, the biggest constraint was a lot of people. Yeah, some people are toying with the idea of working from home, freelance, all this stuff. But there's still that kind of barrier for getting high-level work uh, because high-level work requires you to come into a nine nine to five or into an office environment where the company wants to control all all, all aspects of your working environment. But now. People are seeing that. Even companies are seeing that, the, the freeing aspect of it. I mean, talking about working at 2 o'clock in the morning, that's kind of like my how I work and why I'm an entrepreneur. Right. Is I almost continuously, almost for the last few years, been working around, around that time frame, right? Yeah. But, uh, and people used to tell me, it's like, you, know, you should schedule your emails. So people will get it at like 8 o'clock instead of 2 in the morning so you yeah. don't get backlogged and all this stuff. But now people aren't doing it anymore. They're working that's freely as it is. Yeah, that's right. You know, what's funny about that is for years, I actually, so from, you know, I find leadership uh, as a subject very fascinating, right? And um, I had been doing a lot of reading on the importance of respecting boundaries of your team in terms of the, the influence that you carry, even if you're not, you don't necessarily acknowledge it. So, so this is probably a pain point for me in my leadership because I just feel so connected to my team, just as people, you know, we're friends, we work together, we collaborate, yeah. uh, we're colleagues. And so sometimes you might sort of forget that there is still an inherent sort of influence or a power dynamic that exists by being the leader of an organization. So I used to work at all hours of the night and I would send things out. And then somebody said to me, you know, how, how do you think it would make somebody on your team feel does it add pressure? Do they feel like suddenly they should be working at two in the morning? Do they feel like if they get something at midnight on a Saturday when they're out with their friends that they should leave what they're doing and go answer you? You know, like is, what is that doing? And so I started pulling that back and doing all of the timing of emails so they go in the morning and all that. Last week, I said to one of my team members, I've got to send out all these stakeholder emails to some of our funders. I'm going to be working all weekend. Like, is it okay if I send this on Saturday night? And she said, Jen, time knows no bounds now. <laughs> you know, you can email people whenever you want uh, yeah. because because everybody is is on such different schedules. So it's a little bit freeing to say now I can just work when I wanted to know that lots of other people are doing that. Um, and I've always encouraged to be clear, like I've always encouraged in our organization that we don't really have set sort of like hours in physical space. So work where you want, when you want, as long as you're available when you need to be and you do great work. Do it in a way that works for you. You know, some people mm. love a structure nine to five or a seven to three. 
And some people just want to work all throughout the day and night. Um, and yeah. I think it has been very freeing for people. Everybody can do their own thing. I, I have people on my team who are still, they're up at 5.30 in the morning. They start work at 6.30 and they're very structured how they do it. And that's great for them. And they can still do that in this format. And then I have other people where we can kind of, you know, be bouncing ideas around at one in the morning on a Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how's that done? How's that worked for your company culture? Now that people are a little bit more free and things are a little bit more lax, right? And, and the dynamic has changed. Has, have, you felt, have you felt like the creative output has increased or uh, the, has, has organizational capabilities gone down? Like what, is, what has happened? What's the dynamic here? Yeah, so the, so the thing I was most concerned about was productivity. And the interesting thing yeah. is I wasn't concerned at all, I should say, not as a result of my team. My, my team's amazing. And I already knew going into it that they work really hard and really committed. So it's a lower risk than a lot of other organizations. But I still thought, what, is it, what does it look like? What is the balance? Will some people find it more distracting to be at home while others will be more focused? You know, what will happen? Um, so productivity was my first concern. And then the other concern was just people kind of feeling connected. What we've ended up finding, the biggest thing is that our team is more in the loop. So before I was sensing across different departments that sometimes there's a gap in information sharing, right? So you've got one person working on something and somebody's going in another direction on something else and there's a, there's a missed opportunity to connect and there's a bit of a miscommunication and you kind of, it decreases efficiency, you've got to go back and, and rework it. And what I'm finding now is that because we're so connected by video and it's so easy to just hit a button and zoom somebody in for two seconds, uh, everybody feels much more in the loop. Everybody feels more in the loop around what our goal is as an organization right now. People feel more, way more in the loop in terms of what people are doing in different regions. So knowing what the Vancouver program is doing and the Toronto program is doing and the Northern Ontario program is doing um, and being more in the loop with one another in terms of how they can support and collaborate and create together. So I would say that the synergies increase, the creative output has increased, the productivity is right where it's always been, if not increased because everybody is so committed to be <laughs> happen i mean i would say increase actually because the pivot had yeah. to happen fast you know we can't just not serve our students for a couple months while we figure this out it's, it's got to happen now um so it's it's yeah i mean it's a funny it's an odd thing to say right amidst a global pandemic that there's some positive silver linings what there are and i mean if that's the way that's that's always my take on life i i believe very strongly in perspective and, and, you know, trying as much as possible to see where you can see the positives. And this is certainly one where we've found some positives here. No, absolutely. And from, it's cool uh, hearing it from you, from your point of view too, because I'm talking to a lot of entrepreneurs and they say the same thing. We're pivoting. You know, we're looking for the silver linings. How can we best serve our customer base, our community base, um, uh, and do the work that we need to do uh, effectively and continue going driving on and everyone's on this pivot and that's the cool thing is everybody is figuring this thing out mm -hmm. um how has that collaboration been across other organizations are you working with other ngos are you collaborating together and finding ways to work together or work silently yeah for sure i mean yeah. you know being being candid there's a there's a huge dichotomy in the in the nonprofit sector right i mean we are um historically a decade behind you know for profit business in terms of the tools that we use and the technology and sometimes the approaches. Um, and for me, that's one of my passion points in the sector is really wanting to shift and transition some of how we work and how we think and, you know, working on a faster paced model, a more iterative model, you know, more collaborative, a bit more innovative. 
being able to pivot and be flexible. And so I would say that it's, it's certainly magnifying that this sort of dichotomy between organizations that are focused in that way and organizations that operate a little bit more conventionally. So the organizations that operate more conventionally are really struggling right now. I mean, the idea of pivoting programs, if you've done one program the same way for 20 years and now suddenly you've got to come up with something new and it's not in your culture to kind of create and pivot, that's very challenging. And so, yeah. and even, you know, some organizations that have had the same cycle of funding or, you know, all of these different factors, it's a big change. So in the nonprofit sector, there's a lot of change aversion and it's something I'm always working to kind of combat or get people energized around. And so we see that. Now on the flip side, most of the people that I am surrounded by in the sector are sort of like-minded people and there's so much collaboration happening. So, you know, I'm part of something called the Epic Exchange where we have uh, cohorts of nonprofit CEOs and we come together. So my cohort is 10 of us and we, we are really engaged with one another. We meet uh, basically bi-monthly and we do four-hour sessions where we dig into strategic challenges that we're facing. We share all of the, the, the personal side, lots of tears, lots of laughter around sometimes the weight of, you know, carrying an organization that, you know, nonprofits can be very, there's a lot of stress that goes into carrying yeah, yeah. that. And so, so that kind of group is now coming together amidst this crisis and leaning in even more. What are wow. we learning from each other? You know, what's our, what's our communications and marketing strategy? What are people doing on social media? Even in terms of video statements, I was talking to another CEO this morning and he said, oh, it was you know, great to see the video statement um, you released because I've been trying to follow what each organization is doing and then figure out what I might have to say and how I want to say it. So there's a lot of people leaning in just to how are you doing? How's your organization doing? What challenges are you facing? How are you pivoting your programs? How are you pivoting your marketing, your communications and your fundraising? How are you engaging with stakeholders? And then there's this other side where organizations are actually really increasing partnership, which is amazing. So I've had a number of conversations with organizations that are saying, how can we cross pollinate with online programming? Um, you know, we had previously been looking at um, an opportunity for partnership through a city of Toronto grant with another organization and it was going to be for summer camp. But now we're looking at how can we run an online module jointly of a new program. So there's there's so much collaboration happening uh, amongst different organizations, and the big thing is just support. The number of text messages I've got from like fellow you know nonprofit leaders just reaching out to say, how are you guys feeling? What are the stressors for you? How can we help each other? I was on a call this morning with somebody who said like for you personally, professionally, and as an organization, just tell me what I can do. You know, people are really rallying around one another. No, absolutely. Um, uh, that's great that these kind of communities, these kind of support groups are, are existing. Um, I mean, I can I, I can kind of emphasize the struggle between getting like a CEO to like open up about the, the personal struggles they're having because they're so used to containing and being in the leadership role where they have to yeah silo themselves their personal feelings out. Um, I ran like a similar kind of group when I was working at, as an entrepreneur resident at NGFT. We had about like 20 companies at a time building. These are early stage companies. A lot of them are first time founders, a lot of them students. And you know, it's a very emotional roller coaster to talk about what you're building and seeing the next day, it kind of uh, idea falls apart and another idea picks up, right? Especially early stage, a lot of back and forth. But to get people to open up and talk uh, very candidly about what they're feeling, 
and how and um, to get can express that emotion out. It, it's so powerful and yet so hard to do. Um, it's hard to do in person, right? But how do you kind of build that kind of co-environment when it's virtual like this? Have you found that to be a difficulty? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I am, I'm, I'm very uh, passionate about exposing more sort of vulnerability and, and openness and leadership. And I think that more and more, there's more literature coming out that sort of suggests that type of vulnerability and authenticity is very effective in leadership. I've always believed, um, so when I was younger, I would work in some organizations where the culture was what I would say very business oriented. So just not yeah. a lot of sort of that more, you know, raw, real talk. And people would come in and they didn't really know that much about one another. And they would, you know, work on their project teams and get things done. And that was it. And when conflicts would arise, I would always observe that it seemed that there would be a bit of a us versus them. And I started contemplating at that point in my career, what would it look like if we worked in organizations where we really knew each other in a really personal way, where when a conflict arises, the first thing you might do, you oh, this person behaved in this way, but I know this person and I know that maybe they were triggered by this, or maybe they, they did this out of this feeling, or I know that their intentions are good because I know they're a good person, so you start to be able to focus more on the, the problem and finding a solution instead of on the person because you know the person or you focus more on the person in a way, depending on how you look at it. So yeah. um, I think that having spaces where people can come together and, and create that kind of environment where you can really be honest and open is very powerful. And so for us with our team, um, you know, Several months ago, I started thinking about how open am I, am I with my team. So um, we share a lot when we meet together in staff meetings and things like that. But there was certainly a lot of vulnerability that I still hadn't shared. You know, I went through a, a major personal change last year when I was separated. And so, um, you know, a lot of that I still kept fairly private, with excluding a couple people in the organization. And more recently, I started opening up more about it. And it's been interesting because now on our video calls, I would say that the same thing is happening. So people are really sharing the, the really raw reality of some of what they're facing. And what I'm seeing is that everybody faces a unique challenge. That's the biggest thing that's hit me with, with COVID is that when people are working in this environment and facing the challenges we're facing, they're completely unique to everybody. So one person might be struggling because they have elderly parents and they're very concerned about them and they need to make sure that they're getting them groceries and taking their garbage out and they're trying to keep them safe. Somebody else is struggling because they have an 18 month old at home and they don't have additional supports in the home and there's no way to explain to an 18 month old that they need to get their job done, right? So that person is having that struggle. And then somebody else like me personally, being candid, you know, one of the big struggles has been that, you know, I was in a partnership for a very long time with another human. And so now I'm in this uh, social distancing mode and I'm alone. <laughs> and so mm. that's challenging, right? There's this, and so to go on video and we actually spent the very first staff meeting we had after we all switched to remote work, which of course happened really fast, right? We had this business continuity plan. It went from phase one to phase four in 24 hours, right? And so we have this, we jump on this first staff meeting and the first thing I did was started by saying, this is, a, this is the challenges that I'm facing. And everybody opened up and shared like some very uh, raw emotional pieces about, about what everybody's living. So I, I, I still find that our connecting just and creating that open dialogue. Um, 
And I think you're right. I think in leadership, there is always a focus on making sure that kind of your optics are curated or that you demonstrate the right amount of strength. And um, there certainly is a need in, in a leadership role to create a sense of calm and confidence, no doubt, right? Especially <coughs> crisis. I mean, your team needs to know that you're in control, that you feel calm about what's happening and, and that makes other people feel calm. So that's a huge part of leadership. But yep. you need to have a community where you can go and say, these are the parts where I feel like I'm buckling under pressure or these are the parts where I feel like no matter how much I chase, you know, the thing I think I should be doing, I feel like I'm always failing in this area. So I think creating those communities, and, and I've heard of similar ones in, in entrepreneurial circles or, or for-profit business. Uh, I think the thing that I've, that's unique about the one we have is it's this very small, these cohorts are only 10 people. And so you're going in to a closed room that's completely confidential. And over the course of a year, now we're going into our second year, you're building really close personal relationships. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think, uh, I think you got that formula right there. I think it's important to have a small circle of people you can rely on year after year. And uh, that's cool. I mean, that's, that's really interesting to have that kind of mind, mind share to go born into it. Um, and this program is continuing, like you said, virtually, right? Like everyone's still Yeah, we're and- continuing virtually. And I mean, if anything, again, it's been, it's been really helpful to see where everybody is at in terms of their programming. You know, there's a number of people in my cohort who work in children and youth spaces and everybody's affected and impacted differently depending on what kind of service or product that they offer. So it's been really helpful to just hear where people are at and also just get different vantage points of the way that we view, you know, the kids that we serve and some of the challenges that we see and we hear when we speak to the families and the kids and then what somebody else is perceiving. And then and then figuring out how we're going to all work together. So, you know, the, the students that we serve, food insecurity, as I said, is a, is a significant issue right now. So, you know, you want to just, we've, we've got to take care of this. We've got to figure this out. Now, are we the right organization to specifically address food insecurity? No, we don't have any expertise in specifically making sure that we're getting food out to kids, right? I mean, we do in the sense of within our program, we look at it and look at how we can make sure that we're offsetting meals for kids. But... Um, you know, the better thing we can do is partner and collaborate with organizations who have that expertise. And so I think that's the thing right now is like all the collaboration around who does what really well. So who does the, the academic supports really well, you know, like a pathways to education, like mentorship and, um, you know, all the tutoring and things like that. Who does that really well? And then who does the piece really well around, you know, making sure that kids have something to eat. And, you know, for us, who does the piece really well around making kids, making sure that kids feel like they matter and they are engaged and they see their potential and they express themselves and they dig deep and they find all of the magic and like the power of who they can be and what they can create in their life. And that's us. And so when you put all those pieces together, you end up in a situation where crisis. There certainly is a focus on some of the more obvious um, critical interventions that do need to exist when you look at shelters and when you look at food insecurity and things like that. But again, it's also really important that we don't forget about the 10-year-old who's at home, maybe doesn't have very much to do, doesn't have access to technology, doesn't have access to other programs or friends or like, I mean, that is, that's a really challenging thing. So it's how do we all collaborate to make sure that we're, we're wrapping around the needs of the whole child and making sure that they're served. 
Is there, is there any cases that you can talk about um, just to put like a human story behind what's happening right now? You know, uh, to be honest, my team has been focusing the most on uh, connecting, I mean, connected to families and students just constantly right now. That's, I mean, that's one of our main, um, main components of what we do is making sure that we're kind of finger on the pulse of what kids need and where they're at. Um, I've been so wrapped up, to be honest, in the, the strategy of trying to just be able to pivot and maneuver and get where we get that I actually this morning as a matter of fact thought to myself I need to get in touch with my program team and say share all the specific stories of what everybody's living right now because I you know what I get is a very high level like these are the this is what we're seeing these are the trends of what we're seeing these are the issues our kids are facing this is how we think we can address them and uh, and I was thinking that today I would really like to hear specifics of different kids in our program and what they're living right now. But what I can speak to more is, is on a whole, what, what all of these kids are facing. And it's, it's very, it's very challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> the larger an organization is the more, the less of a, the more of a barrier the leadership has between the end client, right? And you really have to trust the right people in between to provide information back and forth. Well, between yeah. And the thing, you know, the thing that's interesting is, um, I, in the past, actually, I mean, I would probably have been the, the kind of leader where I would be a lot kind of in the details at different levels of the organization. And I spent the first 12 months with their arts restructuring the organization, increasing scope of different roles and autonomy. And it's really sort of paid off in the sense that our team is just so capable. And so the interesting thing is before where I would have wanted to kind of like double check, what are those conversations happening? And, is, you know, what are we hearing? And now I know, I know that my national program manager knows exactly what's going on, is completely in contact with her team, who is in direct contact with all of the communities that we serve, with the school boards, with the teachers, with the principals. And I can trust that when they say to me, Jen, these are the needs that we've identified and this is the direction we need to go, that I can trust that. And then I can spend my time rallying additional support and advocating for these needs and focusing on those pieces. But it doesn't discount the fact that I should have a few stories that I can share because it's very, uh, it's helpful to make it tangible for people to understand, right? Absolutely, right? And um, yeah, I mean, that's what part of the struggle right now is everyone's kind of like shifting on strategy and trying to figure out how to keep things going as uh, almost as business as usual, even though it's not as usual. What do you think, like, if this thing continues on, I locked down procedures for three months, six months, seven months. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you uh, think of existing as an organization? What do you have a planning process? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, um, we're fortunate because we offer a service that can pivot and we, and we still have a need that we need to address. Um, the nonprofit landscape as a whole is in trouble you know, it's not good because there are a, a lot of organizations that provide really important services to the community, but that might not necessarily have a place right now in the context of how people are living, but it doesn't mean that <coughs> important services, right? And yeah. so um, as a whole, I'm very concerned about the sector and about the lack of um, focus that's being placed on you know, the nonprofit sector contributes significantly to our Canadian economy and is obviously a very important part of our, the social construct of, of the welfare of, of our citizens. And so 
I'm very concerned about the lack of focus being placed on that and making sure that you know, even when you look at things like wage subsidies that come out, you know, how are they addressing the needs of nonprofit organizations? You know, is the assessment process aligned with the fact that a revenue structure for a nonprofit is completely different than a fee-for-service model for a private business, right? So I think there's that piece of the sector I'm concerned for us. We are fortunate because we work in human service, but in a way that we can pivot. So, you know, our biggest concern is making sure that we find a way to effectively reach the kids that we serve. And this is what we'll, we'll discover over the next four to six weeks as we roll out all of these, these new um, programs or new formats of programs is, you know, can we effectively engage students the same way that we can in person? I believe we can because we have an amazing team and they're creative and they'll problem solve the heck out of anything that comes up. Yeah. Um, but I would say over the next several months, it's really about continuing to lean into the things that are working for our students, but recognizing that the need is going to keep increasing because, you know, what we see, what we see ourselves as is really an upstream approach. So we're trying to intervene with students before they get to a point where they need to call kids help phone, for example. And so it's amazing, right? The government stepped up stepped <coughs> for kids help phone. And that's wonderful. That's, those are for, for kids that are in a, in a crisis, right? What we're trying to do is prevent the crisis. We're trying to ensure that kids have adequate stimulation, emotionally, socially, um, can learn and grow and feel supported and empowered in the situations they're living in, can feel a bit more control because they can be more aware. Um, and so we are most concerned that if we are not able to continue doing what we do and other organizations like us, we're going to end up with a lot more young people in crisis. And that's what we don't want. And I think, you know, we've always prided ourselves as an organization that we start at what we consider a point of early intervention, so age nine. And when you are able to reach a nine-year-old, it's very different than reaching a 15-year-old. If a child's living in a cycle of poverty and oppression, by the time they're 15, they're gonna feel pretty differently about than if somebody intervenes at nine. And so I think that's the biggest concern for us is just, we would like to see more of a focus on the mental health and the social emotional well-being because you know focusing on the the academic piece is not enough for for kids and particularly kids who face additional barriers that the kids we serve mm. are dealing with yeah um so it kind of comes back to a pretty kind of a darker topic especially twitter has been kind of kind of proponing uh proponent of right of like right now we're seeing a purge of like the of the infrastructure laid out by the boomer generation if you will right like the older infrastructure may uh that have been put together the older ways of doing things from maybe from the nine to five job to um just school in general to all this stuff right like we're seeing almost a hard reset this is like a catalyst this event is like a catalyst for this real change that uh the new i guess wave of industrialization is bringing on um, I mean, do you think we're prepared to, for this change, uh, this drastic change? No. And if, and, no, right? Of course not. Of course not. We're not. But uh, I guess what, like, what is the opportunity of change? Mm -hmm. What are the types of change you would like to see? Right? Like, what are the radical changes that we can implement society-wide? Right? Yeah. When it comes to, like, restructuring schooling, restructuring working environments, restructuring things, right? What are some things you would like to see uh, in your, your industry? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm fairly juxtaposed in this because 
on the on the work side and the organizational side, I see only positives. It's like really, I see only positives. I see decreased spending on infrastructure. I see increased freedom for people and autonomy. People feel happier in their job. They're more connected. Like I just see all positives. Um, for young people, I, I don't see the same thing. And so I think that you know, are we so are we ready on the organizational side? Debatably, yes. I mean, mm -hmm. in the last six years, there's been a huge shift in terms of the way organizations offer work from home. I would argue that there was still, uh, you know, for, for my personal leadership style, like way too much sort of policing and things like that. You know, somebody works from home, but they've got, you know, big brother over their shoulder the whole day, seeing exactly what they're doing. And I mean, if, if, you, if you keep tabs on staff that way, they're not going to feel very empowered to kind of work the way that they're going to work best. That's my, my philosophy anyways. And so I think that organizationally there had already been a shift. And so we're ready. I mean, certainly there's been, I've heard of lots of issues from things like our, our board of directors, which are all, you know, most of them are in corporate sectors. And so I've heard things like, you know, all of the, the blocks that are put in um, through their servers and things are now causing a problem because, you know, they can't access like LinkedIn videos or something because they normally can't do that from the office. And now they've got the same blocks and, suddenly it's a little bit messy when they're trying to navigate different client relations strategies and things like that. So, but that can all be figured out. Um, on the side with young people in education, I think it's a much bigger uphill battle because we had not made any headway. So it's not like in business culture where the ball was already rolling. Now we just are, you know, yeah. it's going a little bit faster. Um, I think that in education, we still have been working you know, almost sort of the same way we did when I was a kid, right? I mean, there's more technology used now, but not across the board because it's not seen as, seen as a necessity. Like how, how can we have kids, you know, growing into digital literacy and technology if we don't recognize as a society that having the internet and access to technology is a basic at this point, at this day and age. And so I think that for young people, the concern for me is again, if you switch you know, so a little bit of online learning, sure, maybe that's a positive. Maybe we're going to see that, that there's some opportunity for online classrooms and things like that. Um, maybe we're going to learn that kids don't need to be, you know, as scheduled for as long in a day academically, or that there's other things we should be adding into their, their school day. And maybe we'll learn that because now that kids are at home, they're benefiting from all different types of exploration. And learning. Mm. But I would say by and large, my concern is that we just can't we, we cannot serve young people through a computer screen and a TV screen. And so when you look at, you know, so moving aside where this goes after COVID, when you look at this right now, we have a society of people where grown-ups still have to work and kids need to grow and learn. And so these two are not mutually compatible, right? So you've got, you know, the best of what's being offered in terms of, having kids still be engaged and simulated is an app or a TV show. And that is just not the type of engagement that a child needs. And I mean, you know, what, what we see in our program is that we're already trying to increase that from a conventional school setting. So a conventional school setting, there's lots of interaction, there's amazing teachers, they're teaching their students, but there's still a ratio that makes it impossible for a teacher to really lean into different behaviors that students need. Now, Dear Arts, we take you know, a cohort of students, we increase the ratio of teachers, 
our facilitators. And then we have a scenario where when a child is acting out or feeling frustrated, somebody can pull them aside one-to-one and dialogue and re-engage and figure out what's going on. And it's so positive for that child. If you switch to an online model where kids are using apps and things like that, I mean, you're completely missing that whole social emotional piece where you're intervening and kids are learning and developing resiliency and all of these things. And so that would be my concern through, through social distancing. My concern is that kids are just not getting the type of interaction, support, engagement, dialogue, learning, growth that they need. Um, Beyond the social distancing, I think it just maybe, maybe hits on the fact that we should be looking more proactively at technology and access to technology. And I mean, you know, obviously in the space that you're in, and I think we've spoken about this before, you know, the future of work revolves around technology. And yet young people are not in a position where they're, where they're, they're really transitioning well into that. Now, kids that are in privileged environments are, they access, you know, wonderful programs, coding and developing all these things. But a kid who lives in a neighborhood where it's not necessarily safe for them to go out and walk around to different programs and spaces. So they're at home a lot of the time and then they don't have access to the internet or a computer. You know, how is that kid gonna have any type of equal opportunity to go into a world where in every corporate sector it revolves around digital literacy and technology? Um, And so I think that this, so there's a silver lining. So hopefully um, amidst all of this, there will be an emphasis placed on the fact that at this point in our world, if a child is accessing or experiencing a barrier to access, it's an issue. It's no longer something where we say, you know, that's a luxury and a privilege and it's not a necessity, it is a necessity. And it's already happened in the work world, it's a necessity to have access to technology. It's not yet there in schools, but as that starts to shift, we're gonna see, if if kids are gonna be at home for the next four months, they're going to need computers or iPads or tablets for something to be able to function at home. And so maybe that will help propel the conversation and the dialogue around the fact that right now there's a huge disparity in the advantage and disadvantage that kids face based on their socioeconomic situation and how that plays into digital literacy and technology. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it's a, it's a compounding issue within, within the times, right? And the catalyst that uh, has hit us all, COVID-19, has really um, exacerbated this issue of um, the income inequality, access inequality, uh, ability inequality, right, within our population. And uh, kudos to you guys for continuing the fight and for bringing the support on. Um, we're nearing the end of our episode, but uh, I mean, I think we dived into a lot of different things. Um, I, like, I love the idea of how you're pivoting with an organization to keep delivering the kind of uh, objectives that uh, you need to do and uh, uh, wish you guys all the best. One thing from our end, um, I mean, unfortunately all this happened, like we were, uh, before all this happened, we were doing monthly events and uh, we we're actually gonna, we we're actually gonna uh, reach out to you um, where we wanna put 20% of our proceeds where we got from our events uh, and funnel into dare arts because we like the issue that organizations you guys are going after. Um, especially since these service uh, and areas that we really care about, which is Scarborough, um, we wanted to talk about that. Unfortunately, that is up in the air right now, but if there is any way that uh, we can, you know, share some links or uh, any kind of funding opportunities to help support you guys or just a knowledge share or anything like that, please reach out. 
Um, love to support uh, from uh, in whatever network that we can uh, deploy towards this. We'd love to. I so um, appreciate that. Honestly, I mean, we really, really appreciate that. And, um, you know, it's the thought that counts right now. And then we'll be back having events and we'll, <laughs> we can make yeah. that happen. Uh, but I think, I guess the thing too is just an important message is for us right now, these brave boxes. Um, so, you know, just quickly to say the concept behind these is that we recognize that businesses right now are lacking in touch points with clients and colleagues and customers um, and vendors. And so the idea of this brave box, this gallon of boxes, is that it's actually a, it's a client relations tactic, really. So somebody can reach out and when they, when they order this box for somebody, they'll custom messaging from their company to that, um, to that individual. And it's cause driven because you know, the proceeds are going to, to help our programs, a significant portion of them. Um, but it also means that people can engage with something that's fun at home and receive something in the mail. And I think it's going to be great. So, I mean, if anybody's interested in brave boxes, that's a great way for, for small businesses, large businesses, companies, uh, everyone really to, to support what we do. Uh, and it's going to be, a, it's going to be a fun night. I think doing this, uh, the brave event. Yeah, please uh, share that with us and we'll blast it out with our network. Absolutely. And for anyone listening in, uh, where can they find more information about you and their arts? Uh, where can they go? Yeah, so uh, darearts.com is our website. Um, we are also on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're soon to be on TikTok because that's where a lot of our young people live. <laughs> we're very excited about that. Uh, yeah. yeah, so darearts.com. And then, of course, LinkedIn. We're on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. Jennifer Wilson and Dear Arts is as well. And we love connecting with as many people as possible and expanding our network. So um, we certainly encourage right now, we need support more than ever. You know, we need people to step up in terms of funding and partnerships and connecting new networks. So um, we welcome everybody to reach out and, and get in touch and learn more about what we do. Perfect. Awesome. So I'm going to end the episode here.